News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know you're getting a little older when you can't help but notice how many times other people use the term like in conversation. Or maybe you're one of those people who likes to correct others' grammar. Either way, thing is, spoken language is something that evolves over time. Yes, even using the word like or um or ah, you know how people love to use those sprinkled into their conversation. Well, Dr. Valerie Fridland is a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada and is the author of a book called Like Literally Dude. Dr. Fridland, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Absolutely. And I loved your intonation when you said that. It was perfect. <laughs> well, also, I'm going to be really careful in my conversation with you so I don't use any of these terms. Do you have that thing now where you just can't help but notice it when you're talking to people? You know, it's funny because I do notice it, but people often say that to me when they find out what I do and they, they get nervous, but that's the antithesis to my role. I want to tell people you're redeemed for saying those. They have beautiful histories, surprisingly social backstories, and they, they serve a really important purpose for us. So I want people to do the opposite. I want them to, to love their speech rather than hate it. Oh, okay. I feel a little better then. Let's start <laughs> with the word like, because for me, this I feel like it really started around when the movie Valley Girl came out in the early 1980s. And then the next thing you know, everybody was throwing a like into their conversation. Yes, I think a lot of us think of that as a Valley Girl feature. But if you look back in history, what I think will surprise most people is there are a few centuries too late for it to be a Valley Girl feature. It started, or at least we find our first records of it in literary sources, in the 1700s in British trial transcripts. And then if we look at octogenarian speakers in the 1990s, there was a study done where they looked at octogenarian speakers in these rural British villages, and they found that they used like in almost every sentence, much like we use it today and much like the Valley Girls were doing. So I think the Valley Girls pushed it out into the community and made it very popular, but they certainly didn't start it. Okay, so how did it evolve then? Why do we do it? Why do we use these? You know, like is so fascinating because it's an incredibly amorphous word and it has so many different functions. And if you look back about a thousand years ago, like first entered our language in about 1200 as a verb, lycaon in, in Middle English. And then it became an adjective and an adverbial. And then around 1500, a preposition and a conjunction where it would express similarity between two things. So in the case of a preposition between two objects, basically in the case of a conjunction between two clauses or sentences. And this idea of similarity seemed to become detached from the syntax of the sentence. So it was not any more requisite in a particular place like a preposition or a conjunction. And it could move around the sentence where it expressed similarity over the whole sentence. So something such as he is like a brother to me, where it's functioning as a part of speech, becomes like he's a brother to me, where it's the idea of I'm estimating, I'm approximating to get the meaning across that becomes detached from its part, its role in the syntax. Well, you've really studied this, I can tell. <laughs> and so the word literally too, which I know is overused. I myself am kind of a fan of this word for emphasis. It, it, where did that get started from? 
literally is one of those words that people just love to hate. And I can tell you, I hear a lot about it, uh, mainly from people that don't like it. But it is also very, very useful. And it just follows the same path as so many other adverbial intensifiers, which is what we call literally as it's functioning in this new non-literal sense, uh, have done over time. So it started well before this generation. It started in around 1700, 1800. We find it in literary sources like Jane Austen, James Fenimore Cooper, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Mark Twain, all of them used literally, non-literally. But where it really started to pick up this connotation of being a bad speech feature or something that disturbed people didn't really start till the 20th century. And that seems to be when it became more popular. So people probably started to notice it more. So you want people to feel good about the evolving nature of language. What does it say about us when we change spoken word like that? Well, it says that we're just doing what is natural to us. If you look back in the history of English and all other languages, they have naturally evolved over time because that is what they are meant to do. We change our experiences that we need to describe change, and our ability to connect with each other is driven by our ability to adapt our language. And English didn't exist 2,000 years ago. It is a new language that developed because of new needs for new speakers, and that is the history of all languages. Language. That's how we go from Proto-Indo-European, which was the ancestor of English and the ancestor of German and Dutch and Danish and Faroese, to English today that is completely separate from those languages. So it's because speakers needed to connect in communities and identify as tribes and as groups and as being like each other and as being different from others that caused language to evolve. Plus, there's natural articulatory and cognitive tendencies in language that operate all the time. So you put that together with social triggers and voila, new forms and new features. How do you deal with grammar snobs? <laughs> I talk to them very nicely. <laughs> I understand grammar yeah, snobs. <laughs> How do you resist being one, I guess? <laughs> you know, I think I probably started as one, which was why linguistics appealed to me. And, and I have a student that one time told me, uh, I was such a grammar asshole before I met you. And then things changed because I think if you can start to understand language from the eyes and the perspective of a linguist rather than the eyes and perspective of a prescriptivist, where you understand the history and and the commonality of the forms that we hate today with the, the forms that we use today without thinking about it 300 years ago that were hated then, you understand that this is just natural evolution and there's nothing bad about it. I don't I don't require people to like these features. That's really up to you. But saying they're bad is a moral judgment that really casts shade on a certain group of speakers because it's almost always the young, the disenfranchised, and women that lead in language change. And this has been true uh, for the last 2,000 years in what, English. What is your favorite, as you say, adverbial intensifier that you use in conversation? <laughs> I like mad, like he has mad skills. <laughs> okay. I, just, I think it's a little unique, but I also use literally myself because it does give a really nice emphasis. And the trick to intensifiers is almost all of them started at one point meaning something different. So literally means exact or true, but about 
500 years ago, very meant exact or true and was not used as an intensifier as it is today. So it's just natural evolution that they start to mean something huge and big and emphatic because they represented something that was 100% of truth. And that, that degree becomes their main meaning over time. Are there others that we've stopped using over time? Oh, yes, many, many. Adver- adverbial intensifiers turn over very, very quickly. So in Old English, the most popular adverbial intensifier was suive, which is a word that doesn't exist anymore. And what it did is it, it went from meaning strong originally to meaning very. So you can see that strength also contains a high degree of something, so it becomes repurposed as a degree word. But then um, in Shakespearean times, right was a very popular intensifier. So I think there's a line in Shakespeare, he was a man right fair, which means he was very fair. So there's been many, many, many. And well, you can be well good. And in some forms of British English, you still can be today. So a lot of those intensifiers have come and gone, and we still hear small remnants of them. So when we say something is well done, we're not saying it's done well, we're saying it's very well. (laughs) It's very well cooked. Well, (laughs) I said it well. There's one that I use all the time, (laughs) and now I don't feel so bad about it. Thank you for your time this morning. Absolutely. It's been fun. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Valerie Fredlin, who's a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada. Check out her book. It is called Like Literally Dude, and it's all about language, the evolving nature of language, and to embrace some of these slangs, which I know some people say drives them crazy, but Dr. Fredlin says, you know what? Just go with it. This is Mornings with Simi. Lots to break down with Vaughn Palmer this morning for the Vancouver Sun. He joins us now. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. So shall we do this all over again? Because we could talk (laughs) about the port strike and we can talk about Surrey policing. Which one would you like to start with? Oh, I think we got to go with Surrey. This is big. You know, we talked quite a bit about how it has been going on for a long time and questioning whether it is over. But it's been increasingly clear, especially in the last week, that this thing has implications that go way beyond the policing situation in Surrey. Mike Farnworth insisted yesterday, no, no, it's all about public safety in Surrey, but we had a media available with Premier David Eby yesterday, and in that he said, no, no, he said, look, (laughs) here in British Columbia, we have to start planning for the day when we may have to set up a provincial police force because the RCMP is getting out of he, he suspects, providing contract policing at the local level. So Surrey is the first step on a story that I think we may be covering from now until 2032 when the current RCMP contract expires. Okay, so it clearly sounds like they, they received indications from the federal government that don't be thinking that this is a long-term thing with the RCMP in your communities. Yes. You know, you and I talked uh, earlier this week about that story in the Toronto Star where their bureau chief said it is now actively under consideration in Ottawa that in the long run, the RCMP should become a national police force and stop providing local policing. And the Star also reported that now the provinces are already in conversations with the federal government on this issue. So we go to Mike Farnworth on this earlier in the week. And Farmer said, well, you know, we haven't really had formal proposals or anything, but yes, we did have a meeting with the federal government on this issue on June the 1st and 2nd. So it's actively under consideration. And we had the premier last week 
at the Premier's Conference. David Eby saying, you know, it's really interesting to talk to the other Premiers because they all have similar concerns about understaffing of the RCMP, vacancies in the RCMP, and Ottawa's initiation of a dialogue with the provinces about the future of the RCMP. So David Eby doesn't throw things like this out idly. He's telling us, I think collectively in British Columbia, this may be the future. Uh, I was struck too yesterday, Simi, in the audience when Farnworth made his announcement yesterday, sitting there is Wally Opal, the former Attorney General, Supreme Court judge, and the media goes and talks to Opal afterward, and the first thing he says is, well, you know, I've been recommending regional policing and provincial police for Columbia for decades, and that's true, he has. So he's not only there to validate the decision on Surrey, he's also there, Simi, to tell us this is the way of the future in British Columbia. Okay, so if you're the mayor then, Brenda Locke, how do you spin that then, Vaughn, when clearly all the stars are aligned against you, you know, from the highest levels of government saying, this is not the future, you, you better get on board? Well, you know, I think the best advice to her and it's been put to her in interviews, and I know it's gone to her privately, is say you gave it your best shot, and say the provincial government came in and used its sledgehammer powers to force this decision onto you, and you will sit back and spend the $150 million that the province is providing for transition, it's going to take three years of transition. And look, if it ends up costing more than the province has let on, you say as mayor of Surrey, hey, don't look at me. I didn't do this. This is Victoria, right? I mean, yeah, they're giving the her the out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's been given the way out. She's got an exit strategy. It's a politically acceptable one. And Simi, you can tell the New Democrats are worried about that part of it because they hold all the seats in Surrey, right? So they're trying to think about a way to transition now, to complete the transition to Surrey Policing Services without having all Right. Because to me, we're still guessing at the numbers in this case. I mean, the most underreported aspect of the announcement yesterday, and for reasons, because there's so much to cover, you know, all he gave us was a speech by Farnworth and a news conference and a PowerPoint presentation. They still haven't released any of the hundreds of pages of analysis and inside numbers that justify this decision. Now, maybe they will give it to us. It'd be interesting to see what Farnworth says to you when you talk to him this morning, but they weren't, you weren't given anything yesterday. We just have to take the government's word right. that this is what the numbers say, because today, anyway, none of us are holding in our hands the justification for this decision from the head of the policing services. Now, Vaughn, something surprised you. There was a name that came up during that press conference where I was also one of those people who kind of did a double take. I'm sitting there thumbing through the PowerPoint presentation, which they gave us a little bit ahead of time, so we'd be prepared for the press conference. And I get to, I don't know, it's about page seven or eight of a 13-page 
PowerPoint, and uh, Jessica McDonald has been appointed as the advisor on transition in Surrey, and I'm going, wow, I never would have expected to see that. So, so who's Jessica McDonald? Well, Simi, six years ago today, in fact, one of the very first things that John Horgan did when he became Premier of British Columbia was he fired Jessica McDonald as the chair, as the CEO and president of BC Hydro. And the New Democrats made it very clear that this was score settling. They did it with enthusiasm. They fired her and they blamed her for Site C. She'd been the CEO in charge of the project. She, she was seen as a liberal appointee. Well, she was, I mean, you no denying that. And they got rid of her, and she wasn't the person to run BC Hydro. Now, you know, there's an irony, which is the New Democrats decided to continue building Site C, and they did that decision twice. And, of course, today, Premier David Eby is saying, you know what, it's a good thing we got Site C coming in, because we're going to need the electricity. So uh, Jessica McDonald wasn't fit to run the biggest crown corporation in the province under the NDP, well, they brought her back now. Mike Farmer says he's sure she'll do a terrific job facilitating the transition or completing the transition to Surrey Policing Services in Surrey. Um, her severance way back uh, six years ago was at least half a million dollars, and they didn't tell us yesterday what they're paying her to do the job out in Surrey, but it's a three-year appointment, I would assume, mm. so it, presumably a fair amount. Okay, another thing I wanted to bring up here as well, some of the other things that Mike Farnworth mentioned is that he wants to make sure this doesn't happen again. How? Yeah, so Farnworth inherited, along with the job of public safety minister, the job of starting to respond to the report, Legislature Committee, last year on amending the Police Act. And he said this fall, we're going to get the first round of amendments to the Police Act. He said one of the things that will be in those changes is some changes in the law to make sure this never happens again. Well, what does that mean? He was asked and he answered, look, uh, the first thing is the Solicitor General, Minister of Public Safety in future is going to have access to all of the local information available on any plan to change policing services and no non-disclosure agreements, which is what Surrey insisted on on its plan here. So that's the first thing. And he said the other thing is the law is going to make it very clear to local government if you decide to change policing services, if you decide to get rid of the RCMP and set up your own police force or in the long run, maybe move into a regional police force, which is being talked about. There's no going back. That's going to be written into law. So uh, you can understand why he's done that. I, I expect he'll tell you this morning that in his more than three decades in politics, Mike Farmer says this is the toughest thing he's ever had to deal with. He had a knot in his stomach for months over this. And I am sure he breathed a giant sigh of relief yesterday when it's over. When he says um, it's over and this is final and he doesn't think Surrey will sue and go to court and he thinks Surrey will obey the law, 
There's a bit of wishful thinking there. He really wants to be rid of this and never hear of it again. I can imagine. Yes, we'll be asking him about that. Avon, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Still so many questions in the case of the arrest of a suspect in the Long Island serial killer case. So that suspect is a man named Rex Herman. He's pleaded not guilty to the charges, but we're getting a lot more information as well about the inf- what led police to this point in the investigation. So we had a chance to talk with Dr. Scott Bond about this case. Dr. Bond is a criminal behavior expert, author of Why We Love Serial Killers, The Curious Appeal of the World's Most Savage Murderers. Dr. Bond has been following this case, and, and here's what we learned. Well, Dr. Bond, thank you so much for joining us. Let me start by asking you, when did you first become aware of this whole Long Island serial killer case? It was back in 2011 uh, when the, uh, the news started to break and they began to find these, these bodies uh, on Gilgo Beach, and I started to follow it very closely. I was very intrigued because I was teaching at a university at that time, um, in the New York area. So it was, you know, very much in, uh, in my for- forefront there. Right. And that gives us an idea of how long this case has been around, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's been, it's frankly been a cold case for quite a while now, but not unattended. I mean, they've been working on this for, uh, you know, for 12 years, but with, with very few leads along the way. And then all of a sudden, I mean, it was a surprise to everyone when, uh, when this individual was apprehended the other day. I know there has been a frustration with the police department out there. Can you give us an idea, as an observer in the case who's been following along, why was it a cold case for so long? Well, there were multiple law enforcement uh, regimes, if you will, uh, mul- multiple police chiefs. And, uh, and any time you have a change in, in leadership, you know, that's going to lead to some delays and uh, retracing old steps, et cetera. Uh, but I think a lot of the frustration, and for me, as, as, as really as a social scientist, I really felt for the, for the victims, for their families, for their loved ones, because they were very much marginalized. Uh, from, at the very beginning, it's that, ah, they're sex workers. They're just sex workers. So they, you know, they, they know the risks um, almost as if they're disposable human beings, which, you know, is, a, is just a tragic, callous uh, view. Oh, now, over time... There's been more empathy directed toward these individuals, but uh, I know that the families have felt very much um, marginalized uh, along the way. So what happened when you were observing this case and you were reading about it? Did you get an idea of what you think this person might have been like? Yeah. Um, the way that, that profiling works is that you look at the evidence that's available to you uh, at the crime scene and anything else that is known about an unknown perpetrator, and then you attempt to match it to solve cases from the past. And the fact that this individual was meticulously, and sorry to be graphic, but dismembering and packaging up his victims in these burlap sacks and tying them very neatly and depositing them in an isolated area on the beach indicates a certain type of personality and killer. It's a very organized, meticulous, unflappable, and, uh, and psychopathic individual who is able to go to those extreme lengths and plan that way. So he's, he's in many ways, I think, very similar to a John Wayne Gacy, the Killer Clown, or a Ted Bundy, um, or even a Gary Ridgway, the uh, Green River Killer. They were also 
these meticulous individuals who could lure women into their, um, into their web, so to speak, kill them callously, and then deposit their bodies and, and go to great lengths to, um, to conceal his work. Yeah, so leaving aside what we've learned in the last few days then here, Dr. Bond, like just from what we had known of this case, um, what would you say about the, the perpetrator who did this? The evidence available, and particularly the fact that he actually tormented and went to great lengths to call Melissa Bartholomew's sister on her own phone and torment her sister by saying, I have, you know, I have your, your sister here, uh, and here are the terrible things that I'm doing and, and have done to her. That is an individual that is most likely going to fall into what we call a power and control killer. And that's an individual who is not necessarily motivated by sex, although sexual activity will, uh, will likely be part of what they're doing. What they're really driven by is playing God. They want to determine who, when, where, why, and how another person dies. They're like objects to them. They're, they're, they're toys to be played with and ultimately destroyed. So this is a psychopathic, narcissistic individual. In fact, there, there's a term, it's called malignant narcissist, which is an individual who is so self-absorbed, but you combine that with sadism. And I believe that that's exactly what this individual is. And, and, and I believe that before he was apprehended. So are there things that tell you, like markers that you look at that would tell you how close by this person might have been, like it, that tells you that, okay, they know this area, they don't know this area. What kind of location markers do you look for? Yeah, absolutely. The, um, this, is, this is a very isolated area um, in, in Long Island. And it's, it's not well lit at all. I mean, especially at night, you're, you're just in the absolute darkness there. So immediately I knew that this had to be an individual who was intimately aware with that area, probably grew up there, uh, probably, and probably spent uh, much, much of his life there, which is, in fact, uh, what we know now to be the, uh, the case. And serial killers typically kill in a comfort zone. There's a myth. That, that they travel widely and, and kill over great terrain. And that's, that's simply not true. I mean, there are examples of serial killers who did that, but most of them work in a comfort zone and kill within an area that they feel uh, very much in control of. And I suspected that was the case, and I suspected that he lived close by, and in fact he did. He, he lived right across the bay. And I believe that over the years, he, he visited that burial ground, and I think that that burial ground was really sacred terrain to him. What questions do you still have? Well, um, one that is, uh, is profound, and, and so many people are looking for answers, is the, uh, is the case of, of Shannon Gilbert. And Shannon Gilbert is the young woman who was also a sex worker who disappeared that actually led to the discovery of the first four bodies. Now, there's mixed opinions whether Shannon Gilbert accidentally drowned or whether she was killed. So one of the things that I would love to know, and I know her family and other loved ones would love to know, is, first of all, was she murdered? And if so, was she a, a victim of the Long Island serial killer? And then, of course, are there more victims? Or are there more out there that we may not be aware of? Shannon Gilbert's story is amazing, though, when, when you think about it, right? It, it was looking for her that caused them to stumble across the first body, which they thought was hers, 
it turned out not to be hers, but in continuing to search for her, they found all these other bodies, but they don't even know if her case is linked to these. Exactly. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's why I say this is one of the great unknowns and, and one of the most uh, important questions as a criminologist that I'm interested in knowing. You know, uh, it, was, was she even murdered? Although I suspect she was. I really do suspect she was. And was she his victim or was she someone else's victim? Right. OK, so still lots of questions to go here. Is this from what you can see in all hands on deck situation? It's just so many like people involved now, so many police involved. Is the FBI involved? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And they have been they have been all along. And, um, you know, they're, they're going to look for uh, evidence that will link him to the additional uh, bodies. Remember, there, there, there were 11 bodies they, that they found in very close proximity including nine females, one male, and a, and a toddler. So is he responsible for all of them? Probably not. Probably not. There are probably other individuals out there who are responsible for one or more of them, but that's exactly what they're looking at now. I understand that there's evidence that links him very closely to a fourth victim because he's, he's been charged with three murders, but they, they have him uh, linked very closely to a fourth and perhaps more. All right. Such a fascinating story. Thanks so much for your time on this. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Dr. Scott Bond, a criminal behavior expert who's been following that Long Island serial killer case. He's the author of a book called Why We Love Serial Killers, The Curious Appeal of the World's Most Savage Murderers. This case is fascinating, though. This is Mornings with Simi love movies about history. I think it makes most of us want to investigate what happened and learn even more about what we just saw. Now, that is already happening with the movie Oppenheimer, which by all accounts, every review I've seen has said, this is a great movie. And that's why our Scott Chance has been looking into it. Good morning, Scott. Hi, good morning. Yeah, I am so, so excited for this movie. I think like so many people are, but I totally don't mind admitting that I think like a lot of people, before all the hype for this started, if you said, do you know who Robert J. Oppenheimer is? I might have said, uh, I think I think I know who that is. Is that the guy who invented the, the atom bomb? That's probably where my information around him. Limited is what you yeah. would say. <laughs> okay. Yeah, right? Like you kind of know the name, but that's kind of it. So now that this movie is coming and it opens today and uh, everyone is talking about it and how great it is, I thought it deserved a little bit more backstory. So I got in touch with Darius von Gutner. He is a researcher, writer, and historian at the University of Melbourne, and he's written a ton about Robert J. Oppenheimer and studied a ton on him and stuff. And so I asked him, like, this is phenomenon is happening, right? They're making this movie and all of a sudden everybody is starting to pay attention. Yes, it seems that uh, the movie is sparking the interest again. And again, the ho- impact of Hollywood's uh, uh, production, um, it, it seemed to be triggering all of this uh, wave of uh, interest, but also kind of, uh, you know, the, the name, everyone seemed to know the name, but people are, are not quite sure as to what exactly Oppenheimer did. Yeah, and I think that that's really interesting. And I, I like that movies are a way to sort of educate people who aren't familiar with what he did. But in your opinion, why why should we... Um, know about him and can you sum up basically his contribution to science and why they're making a movie about him? So there are a couple of things here. My main interest in Oppenheimer is about his ideas about how science and the humanities need to work together. That 
we should not focus uh, just on scientific discovery alone. We should not just focus on the pure science, but we need to understand it also in the context of who we are, who we are species, who we are as thinking um, uh, beings, that in fact everything else, art and philosophy and our history should inform and guide us in uh, not just discovery of scientific um, new discoveries, but uh, but really about, about, you know, how do we use it? Where do we go? Do we need it? He advocated for uh, people to learn about the kind of the whole sphere of human activity, not just one side of it. Um, of course, he's going to remain the father of the atomic bomb. bomb. This is the, the kind of the label that's stuck after his involvement in Manhattan Project and then bringing, um, uh, bringing about the successful um, uh, detonation of the first nuclear um, weapon. So that's, that's, of course, that's, that's going to be the big label. But otherwise, um, um, he was just like everyone else of us. He was human. Um, he has his faults. He loved, um, he uh, didn't like certain things, um, he was passionate about what he did, he was obsessive about science. On the other hand, he learned so much about the other side, he loved humanity. Can you explain anything about what he was doing before and why he was chosen to lead the project that he led? There are a couple of uh, different interpretations about um, why he was chosen. Um, but I think if you look at his academic career, um, he graduated uh, from Harvard. Then he completed his PhD um, relatively quickly. Um, he clearly um, had a lot of to contribute. He clearly was recognized as a person uh, that uh, worked in domain of physics um, um, at a quite different level to others. Um, so so that's, uh, that's the beginning. Uh, then he was working in different American institutions, um, supervising different students, bringing again uh, different researchers. Um, he um, was, I think, instrumental in shaping people's ideas, but also facilitating their research to bring about new discoveries. And uh, later his students um, were among uh, Nobel Prize winners and um, were recognized for, for contribution to science globally. So I think this is the, the early days are just there, I think, um, as, a, as a base of a lot of other things. Why was he chosen? And this is, this is the surprise because um, on one hand, he didn't have, he didn't have an experience in running a complex uh, projects involving hundreds of uh, people. Um, he didn't have enormous scientific credentials. He didn't win prizes. And we know that he was nominated for Nobel Prize about three times. He didn't get it. But I think um, one, one of the things that stands out that for the weapons program that American government at that time um, was working on, um, having uh, looking at the, you know, the threat of Nazi Germany, um, Oppenheimer's ideas about how that weapon can be actually um, physically delivered, um, he must have been convincing um, to those people that were making these decisions that he was the man able to deliver the theory and the practice. Now, do you think that Oppenheimer perhaps regretted creating the technology that he did? I don't know if we can say that uh, that he regretted it. Perhaps his attempts to create international um, agency to control the use of nuclear energy was an attempt to uh, to essentially uh, use that energy for peaceful purposes. Um, we still, I mean, historians disagree about this. Did he just obsess about the weapon or did he 
actually worked on the use of energy for our purposes. If if the truth is that he he looked just at at the use of nuclear energy, then I guess we can say that um, that's that's you know that shows us the way forward. Um, that he was essentially harnessing a new source of energy for the use of humanity. What do you think we should view his legacy as? Uh, the fact that he was able to uh, travel and talk about science and humanity, science and understanding of us as species and our thinking. Uh, again, that bridging the gap between philosophy, between literature and understanding of, of science. I think this is this is his true, um, per, he discovered that purpose when he was no longer able to contribute just in pure science himself. Um, so in a way, for me, this is uh, this is again a brilliant example of uh, of a scientist um, who um, is able to um, to discover that other side of uh, his endeavor and to link them both to then passionately argue that um, we cannot understand one without the other. That's Darius von Guttner. He's a researcher from the University of Melbourne. And I, I love that take. And I find it a little bit ironic even that Robert J. Oppenheimer was so vivacious about life and yet had a massive role to play in creating this thing that contributes to so much destruction. I'm so excited for this movie. I'm excited for this movie, too. I I love any movie that makes us curious, that we want to learn more about. And I know there's going to be a ton of articles online of people saying, I didn't know this. And I'm thinking, well, what what did you learn at school? Sure. Because we should know something. Even as you said, you know something of Robert Oppenheimer. Uh, So I hope this is a really good opportunity for people to learn more. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. Opens today. And then the weekend is going to be huge, of course. Oh, boy. Okay, I'm putting that. Hopefully this will be the one, Scott, that gets me out of the house to go see it. Let's plan to go see it next week. Together? If you want to. No, thanks. But thank you for that <laughs> offer. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> That's got shots. This is Mornings with Simi. Quite sure yet what is going on with the port strike, if it's on or off. It's been a very confusing 24 hours on that front. We heard that it had been back on on Tuesday afternoon because the internal caucus of the union leadership decided they didn't like the deal and they weren't going to take it to their membership for a vote. So they went back on strike. And then yesterday morning, we heard the labor minister say that they, you know, it was an illegal strike because they didn't issue three-day strike notice. So then they went back to work, reissued the strike notice. And then last night, we hear that they've rescinded the strike notice. So what is happening? There is a lot of confusion right now on that. BC Marine Employers Association also says that it remains fluid and unpredictable. But if you're trying to get some work done, you need you need things shipped, you need the port to be open, I can imagine you'd be pretty frustrated. So joining us now is Fiona Famalak, who's the president and CEO of the BC Chamber of Commerce. Good morning, Fiona. Good morning, Sammy. What are you hearing from your members about this whole situation? Oh, gosh. Well, we're as confused as as you have just uh, laid out there. Uh, We were profoundly disappointed that the tentative agreement was rejected earlier this week. And uh, like you and like everyone, we've been following the roller coaster of events over the last 24 hours. I'm cautiously optimistic, but uh, a deal is not a deal until an agreement is reached and is ratified. So um, what we're hearing from our members at the moment is that they are nervous, they are worried. Um, We know that our West Coast ports are are vital conduits for international trade 
to and from Canada. They move approximately $800 million worth of cargo per day. So any resumed shutdown or any shutdown is is untenable. Um, Our manufacturers are feeling it. Uh, They are waiting for product to complete orders, um, everything from raw materials to glassware to automotive parts to steel for rebar. Our retailers um, also have inventory issues. Many of them have inventory sitting in containers that are sitting on the dock that cannot be moved and and, uh, the uh, the vendors have to to pay for that kind of storage. Um, Others have inventory sitting on the water. Um, And many of our businesses are assessing their staffing schedules because nobody wants to lay off staff, obviously, in this tight market. But at the same time, it's a hard cost to swallow when it's impossible for staff to work without the materials that they need. So it's a troubling time for uh, for our businesses that are, you know, really getting back on their feet after COVID. Many are dealing with wildfire impacts, flooding impacts and so on. So we really need the parties to come back together and to, if they're not already back at the table, to uh, to come up with a deal that uh, brings a swift end to the strike and long-term stability to port operations. Now, I know you survey your members all the time. What What is business confidence like right now? Prior to this, it was actually quite uh, quite optimistic for the for the next uh, three to five years. Of course, many of our businesses are struggling with the cost of doing business in um, in BC right now, um, and uh, we're we're working to to try and and uh, make a difference there. However, the strike has really uh, put a spanner in the works and has really uh, ground uh, operations. Uh, to a halt because of the of the importance of the of the ports and the sheer volume of exports and imports that pass through uh, that gateway. So you're a little optimistic that this might be the end. I'm cautiously optimistic. Right. That, uh, cautiously optimistic. I, I never say never until a deal is struck. And um, I mean, we were optimistic last week. Uh, as was Minister O'Regan, and uh, here we are uh, in a roller coaster. So uh, let's watch today what happens and over the coming days. We will see. Fiona, thank you for that. Thank you, Simi. That's Fiona Famalek, who's the President and CEO of the BC Chamber of Commerce. Cautiously optimistic, as I think many businesses are right now, but we don't really know what's going on with that. We do wait for an update on that. No, The strike notice has been rescinded. Uh, there is a tentative deal that the mediator brought forward. Will the membership of the union vote on that? Well, that's what we're waiting to hear about, so stay tuned for more. This is Mornings with Simi. It's official, well, we think. The province has, though, officially announced that it is ordering the city of Surrey to proceed with the transition to the Surrey Police Service, even though we know Surrey Council voted to stay with the RCMP. So what went into the decision? How does this impact everyone in the province? For more on all of that, we're joined now by Mike Farnworth, BC's Minister of Public Safety. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. So what is the rationale for this? Can you explain to the people of Surrey how you came to this decision? Okay, so... The uh, back in, uh, in, uh, in in February, the, when the, I received the report from the uh, the city of Surrey that they wanted to go back to the RCMP, uh, there was a thorough analysis done uh, by my ministry, um, and uh, based on what they had and the information that we have uh, from the RCMP, uh, looking at, at every aspect of it, 
Um, in April, I uh, released uh, and, and said, if the city of Surrey wants to go back, uh, there really are two paths forward based on, on the review of what we had done, which is to continue with the Surrey Police Service, which was our recommended uh, option. Uh, but if they wanted to go back to the RCMP, then the path to do that would require them to uh, follow a number or to abide by a number of uh, requirements that were non-negotiable uh, to ensure that we're not impacting public safety, not only in Surrey, but in the rest of the province. So that if there was, for example, a significant uh, exodus of Surrey Police Service members, how are you going to restaff? Um, we did, uh, uh, again, uh, receive their report back on how they would do that, uh, and uh, the work done by my staff uh, and uh, showed uh, to me as, as minister uh, that that plan failed to meet those requirements that would ensure safe and effective policing in Surrey, but would also uh, impact uh, other parts of the province. And so that led to yesterday where, uh, to avoid a crisis in policing, um, I made the decision under Section 2 of the Police Act uh, that directed Surrey to continue with their transition to the Surrey Police Service. Could you be more specific when you say crisis of policing? Like, what does that mean for these so, other communities? So, so, so if, for example, um, you know, you had a significant number of Surrey Police Service officers leave to go to other, other, other places, uh, how are you going to restaff? Uh, and so if you're looking at restaffing from taking from other communities, RCMP offices from other communities, either by posting or perhaps by saying, okay, uh, you can go to Surrey and be working overtime. Um, if you're taking from, um, you know, uh, important uh, services such as the highway patrol uh, or from uh, major crime units, for example, uh, those impact other communities. If you're taking from the provincial policing line, uh, where we have said we we have wanted to invest, or not wanted to, but are investing uh, $230 million to fill 270 vacancies uh, of important policing functions in rural British Columbia, small town British Columbia, and, and uh, key uh, enforcement teams such as highway patrols, such as major crime units, um, if you're impacting those, you're impacting other areas of the province. And I've said all along that that's not uh, acceptable. I will not approve that. I understand there have been, you know, non-disclosure agreements signed, but how can the public have confidence in all of this without knowing some of the numbers and some of the rationale here? Well, there was the initial report uh, assessment uh, that was done uh, in February uh, that I released, and I released that report publicly. That is is out there that outlined our concerns at that time. Uh, subsequent to that, as I said, the city did do their report, and we determined that it did not meet the uh, the requirements, uh, the conditions, uh, in order to go back to the RCMP in a safe and effective way. Um, you know, it's unfortunate having to sign a non-disclosure agreement, and I think that's one of the things that I want to see changed, and that's why I said that I'll be bringing legislation uh, forward uh, in the fall to ensure that we don't find ourselves in this kind of situation again. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, uh, and obviously we... Uh, doing this and through consultation with, uh, with local government. I've already spoken with the, uh, the president of the Union of BC Municipalities, but I think, you know, for example, I think the minister should be able to insert themselves into the process earlier uh, to say to local government, yes, you can make this decision, but um, if you are going to make that change, it, you are not turning back uh, halfway through. 
uh, you need to see it. You need to see it through. Um, and I also think that uh, you know it's 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 unacceptable um, that uh, Solicitor General uh, cannot access uh, all the information that they need uh, when making a decision without um, you know in this case signing a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, those are those are changes that I think need to happen because I don't think anyone wants. I don't think any solicitor general, any government, should be put in this position uh, again uh, in the future. So, what were the indications given to you or to, the, to your government about the fact that there might be changes when it comes to local policing, the RCMP? Like, what did the federal government indicate about the future of that? Okay, that's a separate issue uh, from from Surrey. Uh, the decision I made yesterday is in regards to Surrey. Uh, and public safety in Surrey and the rest of the province. Uh, there are, you know, um, I know there are conversations uh, or, and there have been discussions or, well, uh, in, in the media uh, about the future of policing in this country. Um, I, you know, and that's, that's not something that's new. Uh, the federal government minister's mandate letter uh, says, asks, tells him that he should review uh, contract policing. My mandate letter as Solicitor General uh, from the Premier uh, tells me that I'm to, to, to look at, you know, to work on the, uh, the, the, the Police Act reform uh, and the issues that were raised in that uh, all-party committee, which said we should go to a provincial police force, for example. Uh, that report uh, said that would obviously take many parliaments, but that's part of my duties to responsibility is to look at that and go, okay, what would the impacts be? How do we do that? Uh, along with all the other recommendations in, in that report. But yesterday's decision relates to Surrey and only Surrey. So what is your message then to Surrey Mayor uh, Brenda Locke here on this? In her statement yesterday, she also asked for a face-to-face meeting with you to talk about this. And, you know, um, I'm happy to, to meet with, uh, with the mayor. I've, uh, I've, I've uh, indicated, uh, you know, in, I've been asked a number of times now. I said, yeah, I'm more than happy to, uh, to meet with the mayor. The decision uh, has been made. Uh, I think the citizens of Surrey want us to move forward. Uh, I know it has been frustrating uh, for everyone. Uh, but I also know this, um, that we will have, uh, you know, my responsibilities for policing, uh, for public safety in Surrey uh, and the rest of the province. I respect Surrey's position, but the decision has now been made, and I think we need to move forward. And I think that's what the people of Surrey expect us to do. Thanks very much for your time on that this morning. My pleasure. That's Mike Farnorth, BC's Minister of Public Safety. What we don't know yet in all of this is what the reaction from Surrey Council is going to be. Mayor Brenda Locke did issue a statement yesterday, but didn't make any comments publicly, didn't take any questions on that. So obviously there's a lot of, of you know concern question there about what is she going to say? Is this really the end of it? Will Surrey try to take this further? As you just heard, the minister says... For him, for the province, this is it. This is done. They have the authority, the legal authority under the Police Act, and that's what they are doing. What will Surrey's response be? Now, Surrey residents, if you want to weigh in, and clearly this impacts everybody in the province too, right? So what do you think about this? And also, is it time to move to this provincial police force? I mean, it sounds like 10 years down the line, it's a very serious thing that's going to be happening for us here in this province. This is Mornings with Simi. How did we get here where it's battling press conferences, contradictory decisions, and we're all talking about policing in Surrey? Well, we got here because back in 2018 or so, Doug McCallum ran for mayor of Surrey on a platform that included a pledge to create a police force in Surrey and move away from the RCMP. 
But look what has happened since then, right? It certainly has not unfolded as anticipated, culminating in that decision yesterday from the B.C. government, the so-called final decision. We just heard Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth say that, ordering the city of Surrey to proceed with the transition to the Surrey Police Service. Lots of back and forth. So we thought in light of everything that's happened, let's check in with the former mayor of Surrey, Doug McCallum, on this process. Thanks for joining us this morning. Yeah, good morning to you, Simi, and to your listeners. And so what are you thinking? We hear it's the final decision now. Do you think this is it? Yeah, I think it's the final decision. Um, I think the processes are all there. They have been put on pause um, recently um, with a new election. Um, and now that pause is going to be taken off right away, like immediately. And um, the transition will um, continue. Mayor Locke has had some pretty strong things to say about this, about keeping the RCMP in Surrey. What do you think when you hear those comments? Well, you know, I've said um, before, you know, it's not uh, about the mayor um, and, and, and her comments. It's more about the people of Surrey. And, and, and the people of Surrey have felt, even way back four years ago, that they wanted to change um police forces. Um, They want their community safer. They wanted a new type of policing. The RCMP had um, police Surrey for many years. Um, Actually, when I was born in Vancouver, I said the other day, when I was born in Vancouver, we had our own Surrey police at at that time. Um, And um, but the RCMP have done a good job over the years, but their model of policing hasn't changed, and, and they haven't modernized it. Um, it's a new way of policing in communities. Um, it's a, a community-type policing where, where the police officers live there with their families in the communities. They work in there. The kids go and play soccer with people in the communities. Um, and, and they work with the community to be proactive and, and understand the problems, and then start um, dealing with those problems before um, the crimes can um, happen and so forth. It's a new model that you're going to see change around the world, actually. Do you regret anything about how this has unfolded or the process over the last five years when you see how contentious this has become? And Surrey kind of seems frozen in dealing with this and has a lot of other problems that probably should be dealt with, too. Well, I think your last comment's very um, uh, apropos because you know this has taken a lot of the air out of the or a lot of the oxygen out of the air, and there's other um, things that have to be done. Uh, my only regret, I, I think, is that um, the um, process took so long. Um, I would have liked to see it been done in one term and 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 have it up and running in in a four year term. But having said that, um, you know, the the NDP government, the provincial government at the time and today um, did a good job. They were very thorough with it. Um, Minister Farnworth, I've talked to him many times. Um, He did a good, he wanted to be very thorough and he wanted to also respect um, the other RCMP detachments in BC to make sure that they're funded uh, with proper officers. And so the the time needed to be taken, and you know, and uh, I think they did a, a super job, uh, the government, on on finally bringing it forward and and, and moving forward. And and you know, it's also um, could be a leader um, um, across Canada because um, they're looking now nationally of changing um, the RCMP to make it more a national force. Um, 
that deals with um, international items like um, immigration and so forth. And, and so I think you're going to see some major changes um, in policing um, literally right across Canada. And, and I think um, the the current uh, NDP government in BC were, are, are going to be leaders in, in how that happens um, um, with this um, agreement um, yesterday. Can we talk a little bit about the money here too? Because obviously this is expensive. The, the mayor has said this is expensive. Uh, the provincial government is offering to help out with those expenses. Like, What were the costs like when you were discussing this when you were mayor? Because it seems like these numbers now are a lot higher than what was talked about back then. Well, um, I knew the numbers fairly well right from day one and many speeches I gave over the last four years. I said that the um, policing cost for a new Surrey Police Service would be um, 10% higher than the current RCMP. And I I based that um, on the fact that the RCMP got a 10% uh, rebate um, from the federal government, which they still get today. Um, and um, just to give you a raw figures, uh, you know, there's a lot of figures been thrown out uh, around with them, and a lot of them are completely inaccurate. But just to give you a, just a ballpark of it, when I was um, back when I was mayor, and this is probably five years ago now, um, our budget um, for the policing were about $190 um, million. Um, and today, I think they're probably running closer to $200 million. And in, in an overall budget of a billion dollars for Surrey, uh, which is uh, 20%, which is about right for cities with, with policing. Um, so what I said, it would be 10% more, which is $20 million um, a year more um, for our new policing. Now, we, we used that um, when we campaigned and when we came in, and those figures are pretty accurate. Um, and the government, um, I haven't had a look at the current figures uh, because they're confidential reports, but um, the current government has looked at them and they have come in and said roughly they would be paying $30 million, um, to the city um, for um, uh, helping them out as far as the new police is concerned. Mm-hmm. So I think our figures were pretty accurate. I think the government who has seen the new ones, I have not seen the new ones, but I think they've seen them. And so they're saying it's $30 million more and and so i think we were pretty accurate right from day one uh, as far as the increase in cost all the other figures um you know there's a lot of figures thrown in and they're thrown out by a lot of people that have put in out incorrect um, type policing so then how can how can the public have any faith in any of this though because we are getting a lot of contradictory information a lot of numbers being thrown out there well, I think you can have confidence in the the province um, has looked at those all the figures and have come up with about thirty billion a year, so more, um, um, and that's going to get less over the years because the RCMP um, salaries were always lower than municipal forces. They now will be the same in about a year or maybe two years. Um, they're going to be exactly the same salaries as a municipal police force. And that's the contract that they did for it. And so the, the major operating costs um, for any police um, service in, in any city is the labor, is, is the number of officers. 
Um, and um, the RCMP pay will be for their office will be exactly the same as municipal officers in about um, two years' time. And so the major cost for any police force will be the same, whether it's a municipal force or RCMP. So then what do you say to the people of Surrey? You kind of got the ball rolling on this, and, and I'm pretty sure people in Surrey are very frustrated and tired with this situation. So what do you say to them in light of all this? Well, I, I just want to thank them um, in the community for all the support that they have given me even since the election, but in the last five years. Um, I'm out in the community a lot, and, um, and I live in the community. All my kids are in here, and my grandkids are here, and they're playing in soccer and so forth. Um, and I want to thank the community for their support because they continually say to me all the time in, in all the events I'm at, you know, that they, that we need a new police force. The RCMP have been good to Surrey over the years. The officers are good, but their model is wrong for a big city, of a big Multicultural, very fast-growing um, city, and and, and so um, they're very, very supportive. And I just want to thank them for all the support that they have um, given me, um, because it's encouraged me to continue on to to work to solve um, this problem. And I'm glad that it got solved yesterday. Thanks very much the, for the your time. The, yeah. the big, I mean, the big winners in all of this um, is is none of us, none of the politicians, none of that. The big winners are the, are the residents of Surrey. They 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 achieved a huge win um, yesterday, and and um, and so that's the exciting part that I'm excited about. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Okay, thank you very much, Sam. That's and- Doug McCallum, the former mayor of Surrey, the one who really did get the ball rolling on this whole Surrey policing situation. He ran for mayor back in 2018 on the platform of moving away from the RCMP to the Surrey Police Service. He said, thought it would get done in three years. It did not happen. Obviously, it's still been dragging on. But now we've heard of the final decision, so-called final decision from the province yesterday. What we still haven't heard from, though, is the current mayor, Brenda Locke. What does she think about all this? Is it time to wave the white flag and say, fine, I didn't want to do this, but I accept it and we're moving on? Well, keep it tuned in here. We'll find out. Uh, If today she says something, we'll have it for you.